0: We have three speakers this morning. One is the amazing Susie Live. We have Pastor Deustin and then myself coming in third. And so we're going to have a great time. So buckle your seatbelts. And everybody give a warm welcome to the one and only Susie Live.
1: What up, what up, what up, Squad Con? What's up, beautiful people? Good to see you. Hey, I'm coming close. Since you guys like to sit so far back, I'm coming a little bit close to y'all. First of all, shout out to the homies online. Can we give a big round of applause to those watching at home? I got you right here. I see you, chat. Do not fear. Thank you, Pastor Daylight and God Squad Church for giving me the opportunity to speak. What I want to talk about today is something that has honestly really revolutionized my life, my relationship with God. It's something that honestly my counsel and mentor has been teaching me and walking me through. And I really believe it's probably the most underutilized practice in all of Christianity. Now, as people and gamers, we are not unfamiliar with practice. We're not unfamiliar with doing something over and over again to get better. You probably heard the phrase. Put it in the chat. Finish your sentence for me. Practice makes... False. Practice makes progress. Sorry to start my message off telling you you've been lied to your entire life. Practice makes progress. It does not make people perfect. You will never do anything that you will be perfect at. But it makes progress. And in our faith, we want to continuously be making progress, getting to know Jesus more, developing as people. And there are things that we can do, practices in our faith, to grow in our relationship with God. Now, in Christianity, the word practice isn't really used very often. Maybe you've heard it in other religions. Where people say, like, yeah, I used to be a part of fill-in-the-blank religion, but now I'm, I, don't, I don't practice anymore. I no longer Practice, And let me be clear, it's not the things that we do that will get us to heaven. It's not the things that we practice or do that will help us to become accepted by God. We are accepted, forgiven of our sins, get into heaven by what Jesus did for us. But just because our works don't get us to heaven doesn't mean there aren't works to be done. Doesn't mean there are things that we can't do to practice in our faith. In Christianity, we talk so much about Believing. Well, you know, the Bible says if you just believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. But too many Christians today are simply believing Christians, but not practicing Christians. They just believe in their heart. But the Bible says even demons believe that Jesus is real. It's not enough to simply believe. We have to practice. We have to put in real practical steps that will help you and I progress and mature and develop. And a practice that I have picked up from my counselor and mentor is one that has really revolutionized my life, and I believe it's the most underutilized practice in all of Christianity. It's called biblical meditation. Now, when I say the word meditation, a lot of us probably picture me in some sort of yoga pose, Sora's doing it in the background, I can't see it on camera, some sort of yoga pose, my hands in a formation, doing my best to Empty the mind. And the first thing I would say is, stop picturing me doing yoga, that's weird. But second of all, meditation isn't about a pose or a position. And it's most certainly not about emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is about filling your mind with God's word. Getting it inside of you. And what I want to do is I want to walk us through a few verses, Psalm 23. It's going to be on the screen. And really put five practical steps on what you and I can do to practice and learn this practice that has changed my life. Biblical meditation. I'm going to read it nice and slow for us. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful Love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Now, I specifically chose this passage, honestly, because it's short. And for me, when it comes to biblical meditation, that's a key I really like to practice. I want you to think about this when you think about biblical meditation quality over quantity. Now, please hear me, all of the Bible is quality. (laughs) But for the sake of understanding, less is more. When we go into reading the Bible, oftentimes we can just go into it as a, let me just check off the box. I'm just going to practice a Bible reading plan just for the sake of reading the Bible to say that I did it. And again, that's great. It's great to read your Bible. Please read the Bible. But maybe you've heard you know, the Bible plan that people can do where if you read three chapters a day, you'll complete the entire Bible in one year's time. And that's fantastic. Nothing wrong with that. And I want to encourage you to do it. But a lot of times when we think about reading the Bible, we think about, I just got to read a whole ton of it. I just got to get as much information in me as I can. I got to know all the stories, know all the context. And that's good. But biblical meditation really is more about taking a small portion and really dissecting it, really focusing on it, And I want to walk us through five tips in this verse that I think will help you practice biblical meditation. The first one is memorize. This is why you got to keep it short. You ain't going to memorize 13 chapters. But can you memorize one or two verses? Can you literally sit there for a few minutes and maybe just read the same verse over and over and over again? The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. So that in moments of trouble, when you don't have a Bible on you, when you don't know, you don't remember what verse it was, when you memorize God's word, you get it deep into your soul. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against the Lord. It's those crucial moments when when you need it the most, you've got it right there in your back pocket because you've hidden it in your heart. There are going to be moments where you're going to wish you remembered what it said. You're going to wish you had sat there and read it over and over. So sometimes even when you sit down and spend time with the Lord, don't feel guilty about not finishing the whole chapter. Sometimes you might just need to read the same verse over and over and over and memorize and take the time to get it into your spirit. Second thing we could do for biblical meditation is not just memorize, but visualize. Now I'm going to call you out. I'm going to ask for some community engagement, all right, from you in the chat as well, literally what I want you to do when you're reading through, look for moments that you can visualize. Like like we read this verse number one, the Lord is my shepherd. I can visualize a shepherd. Really put yourself in the story. Don't make yourself the hero of the story, but put yourself there. What what, what do you see? What are your surroundings? He lets me lie down in green pastures. Further down, we talked about I will fear no evil. When I'm in the darkest valley he sets a table before me so by raise a hand someone just shouts something out what do you visualize when you are reading through these verses someone in the chat someone in the room anyone you you see escort (laughs) true true what do you see from the actual scripture like when you think about this scenery what are you what are you visualizing anyone visualizing green pastures and a shepherd anyone else You're seeing, a, you're seeing a dinner table? Perfect. Sheep in a dark desert. Okay, perfect. Just call me Shane in the chat, visualizing a farm. This is so beneficial because it, it goes from just reading the Scripture to experiencing the Scripture. I, I, I want to I put myself there. Again, we're not trying to add context or make myself the hero of the story. The Bible is not all about us. But I'm doing something as a practice to really help me understand it. Because now that I've started to visualize, I really begin to experience it in a new way. It's making it easier for me to remember, to recall at a later time. Third thing we can do is we can personalize. Now, this is taking visualize kind of to the next level. We're not just picturing a sheep and a shepherd. We're picturing, what does it look like for me to be held by the shepherd? What does it look like for me to be sitting at the table in the presence of my enemies? What does it look like for me to be there and experience God's word, not just read it as a story, but to read it as a real story? One that if I was alive at that time, I could have experienced. Because so many times we, we read the Bible as a history book. And technically, it is. It is a book about God's supernatural history, but it's not just a history book. This is real. It's God's living word. You just didn't happen to be alive at the time. But if you were, you would have seen it for yourself. And when we practice biblical meditation, it gives us an opportunity to see it for ourselves when we memorize, visualize, and personalize. What does it look like in the middle of all of my stress and worry to see a table and to see all of my enemies on the other side, whether that's maybe some individuals that have been coming against you or maybe some stress financially? What, is it, what does it look like for all of those to be on the other side, for me to be here, and then for Jesus to be sitting across the table from me with everything behind him Showing me, I will stand in between them and you. Personalize it. He's not just talking about the psalmist. Jesus and his promises are also for you. What does it look like for you to read God's word and not just skim by and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. But what does it look like to read it and go, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. It's important to personalize. Another thing we could do for biblical meditation is vocalize. Let me tell you, the Bible is not just a book, it is alive, it is powerful, and it is powerful even when you speak it out loud. There is supernatural power in the Word of God. That's why it's different than any other book. It's God's word and when you open your mouth you are speaking god's word and I'll tell you even alone in a lonely room don't just read it read it out loud read it out loud to yourself sometimes you got to speak it to yourself you don't believe that i have what i need say it out loud enough times till you start believing it the lord is my shepherd i do have what i need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. Say it all out. Say it out loud so the devil can hear you. Sometimes I'm be honest. When I'm in a bad mood, I got some struggles going on, I start turning on sassy Susie and I start reading God's word out loud just so the devil can hear me. Sometimes I overemphasize in the name of Jesus just to make sure he heard me correctly. Read it out loud. Speak it to yourself. Let it come out of your mouth, back into your ears, back into your soul. Read it out loud. And the last thing we can do in practicing biblical meditation is triggerize. Now, I'll be honest. When my counselor mentioned, mentioned this to me, my first thought was, I'm not sure if that's actually a word. But it ends with eyes. It's sort of the other point, so bear with me, okay? And what this means is to look for something in the Scripture that would be a trigger. Now, when we think about the word trigger, normally it's in a negative context. Something about trauma, or someone says something, or something happened that really makes me think back to a negative memory, but there can also be positive triggers, something that reminds you of a good memory, something that reminds you of something really great that happened in your life. And When it comes to Scripture, you can think of something in your life that will help trigger the memory of what you read. There could be some really, really basic ones, like, for example, a green pasture. Really get that in your soul. Think about that place and the scripture so that next time you drive by the green field, the soccer field like you guys probably played out yesterday, next time you go there, the first thing that comes to mind is God's word. You can think of these triggers. You can think of a table. Really begin to connect the two in your mind so that when you're out in the lobby sitting at the table, you think of this story. You think of God's word. Begin to develop positive triggers in your life that keep leading you back to God's word. Because that is how we accomplish what the Bible says, meditating on it all day and all all night. I don't know about you, but I don't read the Bible 24-7. I don't actually pray 24-7. So how do we actually accomplish meditating on his word day and night? We accomplish it by memorizing it so that at any moment I can actually just Take it out. I practice visualizing so that even when I just got a spare moment of free time, I can close my eyes and visualize maybe what I read that morning. I can personalize by remembering back to, hey, that scripture can also be applicable to my life. He's preparing a table for me. When I'm driving in the car, I can meditate by actually vocalizing. I don't know about you, but I'm not driving and reading the Bible at the same time. Please do not practice that. But I can speak it out loud, but if I don't have it in my hands, I can't vocalize if I didn't memorize. And lastly, we can that. all, oh, I just drove by that sign that was a business called Something Pastures. And I'm reminded, Oh, you know what, on my way to work today, the shepherd goes with me. The shepherd goes with me this practice has revolutionized my life it has brought healing to my soul it has made the bible so much more practical for me so many times we go about reading the bible feeling like you did it wrong feeling like i don't know if i did it right did i read enough of it i only read three verses today is god angry at me But this practice, even if you don't accomplish all five of those steps every time you read it, if you walk away from the Bible and you memorize one verse, W, win. You walk away from the Bible and you sit in the presence of God, picturing that he is your shepherd and praising him for being yours, that's a win. These have put real practical steps in my life to help me practice my faith, not just believe it. I'll leave you this one last thought and question. How many of you guys can remember maybe a video game that you played that really left a serious impression on you? I mean, it was like a euphoric experience, like you will never forget when you got that game on day one. Somebody shout out, what was one of those games? Kingdom Hearts, Kingdom Hearts? okay. Wrath of, King. Wrath of Lich King, somebody in the chat. What was one of those games for you? Pinky says Final Fantasy 7. Someone else in the room. Mario 3. Super Mario 3. So many games that we Remember, let's take it to a little bit more real life. Was there ever a time that you, come on, Dustin was telling me last night about a good burger place. Have you ever sat down at a restaurant and had a meal you'll never forget? I mean, it was just so delicious. I mean, you think back, you can start to smell it. It was so good. But the reality is, not every game that you play maybe was as epic or as incredible of an experience as that game that you guys were shouting out. I'm assuming that on every single time you sit at the dinner table, it is this life-changing euphoric experience that you'll never forget. But just because the game that you played maybe is not as memorable of an experience as that one you guys shouted out, does that mean that it wasn't a good time? Every time you sit down to have a meal, it probably isn't an amazing Texas, Houston, burger experience. But just because it wasn't a life-changing experience, does it mean that that food didn't nourish you? And I think sometimes when we read the Bible, if we didn't have this incredible life-changing revelation, we didn't do it right. Or was it even worth the time? And here's what I promise you. That if you practice biblical meditation whether it is a life-changing experience in the moment, whether you've got the Holy Ghost goose pumps, whether you have that experience or not, when you read God's word, it will nourish you. It will heal you and it will sustain you. And when practicing biblical meditation, I believe we can achieve what Jesus promised on how to achieve life and life to the fullest. Thank you guys so much. God bless you.
2: Amen. Amen. Man, that's a good word. I, I hate to have to follow that. Wow. <laughs> no, that there is so much truth in that. Thank you so much, Susie, for sharing that. That's something I can attest to as well, man. Just dwelling on the Word of God is such a powerful thing and I think so underutilized. Thank you for sharing that. Um, well, this morning, I'm honored to be with you again. Uh, if I haven't got to meet you, my name is Pastor Deuston, and this morning, uh, I'm going to share something with you that I think is one of the most dangerous things that we walk through in life, and it's something that we don't recognize the danger of until we step out of it. A lot of times dangerous situations and scenarios, we don't really realize that we're in a dangerous place until we're out of it. And then we look back and say, oh man, I'm glad I, I didn't fall into that. I'm glad I didn't uh, you know, succumb to that or whatever. But one of the most dangerous things that we as people and especially as Christians can live in and exist in is the comfort zone. The comfort zone is one of the most dangerous things that we can find ourselves staying in, living in, just existing in a comfortable space because, hey, I'm comfortable. Why should I change? Everything's okay. I'm content. I'm happy. I have what I need. Why should I take a risk? Why should I take a step out? But here to tell you that life truly begins at the edge of your comfort zone. Life truly begins at the edge of your comfort zone. The the comfort zone, it keeps us from experiences in life that we never would have had if we just stayed comfortable, if we just stayed where we were because, again, everything was okay. I didn't need to take a step. I could have kept on going where I was and been just fine. I had everything that I need. Sometimes it will keep us from experiences, but it will also keep us from our own growth. There's a well-known phrase we've all heard, if it doesn't challenge you, it's not going to change you. If it doesn't challenge you, it's not going to change you. Um, One more thing that it can even keep us from, I'd say, is walking in the will of God. Like, we understand God's going to work everything out, but sometimes God calls us to things, and I think I could attest to this, and I'm sure you could too, where I hear the Holy Spirit leading me a certain way, and I say, I'm just going to ignore that. (laughs) I don't want to take that step. I don't want to make that risky jump, but i got to tell you, it's worth it. I promise you it is worth it. Life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. In Matthew 14, there's a a well-known story that we all enjoy, and I think we've all probably tried to imitate as kids or maybe even as adults. I did this yesterday while I was out at the pool with my kids, and that's whenever Jesus walks on the water. Peter steps out of the boat, and he tries to walk on the water, and we see this amazing thing happen. But I want to show something to you in this that that can help us here. In Matthew 14, it says uh, in verse 22, Immediately he made the disciples, he made the disciples. Keep that in mind. Get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. It's talking about Jesus, obviously. When evening came, he was there alone. But, by, uh, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. See, in that moment, Peter, he had a moment where he uh, he could look at the situation and just... Stay in the boat and say, well, Jesus is out there. That's crazy, man. I'm going to have a great story to tell. But he steps out in faith and had a one-of-a-time experience we still all talk about and read about and is recorded to this day. In fact, like I said, hey, yesterday, I'm even out there at the pool with my kids. I'm chunking my kids in the pool. We're having a good time. But hey, just ever since I was about four years old, I was like, okay, if I just have enough faith, here we go. I'm just going to step on that one. I believe and Boom. And splash. <laughs> Hasn't worked yet. But it doesn't mean I'm not going to be like 74 one day trying that thing. I'm going to be doing the same thing. The rest of my life, uh, man, just imagine if I just had that one moment, that'd be so cool. Um, but something really wild in this is this, I just read to you Matthew's account, but if you look at Mark's account of the same story, it gives us a, a really cool little detail where while Jesus is up on the mountain praying, it says he looks over and he sees them. He sees them in the storm. See, he made them go into the boat knowing that storm's gonna come, and while he's praying, he sees them there. He can see us in the middle of our storms but that doesn't mean that he's absent from our storms he sees us and he walks with us through it but whenever we get into those comfortable situations we've got to take a step out we've got to step out in faith plenty of times throughout my life there have been so many experiences that i could have not taken a step where I could have just stayed comfortable and and been good. We were talking about this uh, yesterday or the day before. I can't remember, but we were talking about college stuff and kind of where I, I went to college and whatever and why uh, how I used to play tennis back in the day. Sorry, Dustin, I didn't tell you about that before we played ping pong earlier, but yeah, I used to be a uh, you know, top-tier tennis player. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> so I went to uh, the number one uh, Uh, junior college in the nation for tennis on a full ride and all this stuff. And I'm playing there. And while I'm there, I met my wife. Uh, And so we started dating and and I'm traveling and doing all this stuff. Also being called into ministry all in one year, my freshman year of college, I had to take multiple steps out of my comfort zone. Because one, I had to leave home, go to college, already a step. It's already scary. It was a good opportunity, but it was scary. Two, I saw this lovely young lady walking around, see, she, her, uh, her job, her on-campus job was giving tickets to people who parked in the wrong place, and no, she didn't give me a ticket, that's not how we met, because everyone assumes uh, you can't park, right? Uh, no, but I would just see her walking around, and I'd be, you know, walking back and forth from tennis practice or whatever, and... It's like, hey, go talk to her. So I start walking her route with her and just talking to her, annoying the mess out of her. And she's just trying to like, okay, give, give tickets and, you know, leave me alone, dude, whatever. But I just kept walking with her and talking with her. And we built a friendship for months and months and months before we ever went on a date or anything like that. And then, you know, dated a few years, got married, whatever. This year, uh, actually in a couple of months, we'll celebrate our 15-year anniversary. <gasps> Woo! Yeah, thank you. Thank um, you. But it all took that first step out of my comfort zone. Um, Each of those kind of situations, they're all something where I had to take a step. Whenever I felt like God was calling me into ministry, that is not something I wanted to do. I had no intention of that. The plan was professional tennis player, period. End of discussion. From the time I was five years old, my dad got me private lessons with the number one uh, player from Texas A&M. Every day of my life from five to twenty two that 's what I did was play tennis. That was the only dream, the only goal. but when I was a freshman, I felt like God was calling me into ministry. I was like, "God, okay, my grandpa 's a pastor i 've been in church my whole life. I love you, I want to serve you, but i don 't want to do that i 've seen how it gets i 've seen the the dark side, the difficult the struggles i 've seen that i don 't want that." But I prayed about it, felt like it was what the Lord was leading me to, and so I had to take a major step of faith, and I'm so glad that I did. Because if I had stayed on that course, I would have been like so many of my friends who are still in the tennis world, but they just barely make enough money to pay for hotels and travel and whatever, and that's their existence. And now they're coaching, and they love it, and that's great. But I knew that God had called me to something, so I had to take a step. One of the biggest uh, steps... That I've had to take uh, out of this comfort zone was for my daughter Eva. I've already shared with some of y'all yesterday during our uh, small group time, we were talking about this. Um, But if you don't know, I have four kids. Uh, Our two oldest are biological, our two youngest are adopted. And whenever we um, were first getting into that, adoption was like a totally foreign concept to me. Uh, My wife comes from a family of 10 kids. Uh, so big family, I come from a family of two and, you know, no big deal. But those 10 kids, seven of them are adopted in my wife's family. So she's used to it. She loves it. It's, it's just part of her life. But for me, totally foreign, no concept of how that works or anything. But so we started looking into it and worked with a foster care agency, all that kind of stuff. And they worked, through the, worked us through the process of getting certified and uh, they start sending us emails of kids. Every day, multiple kids who are uh, put into the foster care system just here in Texas. And one little girl really stood out to us. Her name was Eva, and she has uh, Down syndrome, uh, multiple uh, very serious physical issues. Um, the first three years of her life, she spent uh, hooked up to a machine, never ate a single bite of food for three years, never drank any a sip of water for three years of her life, Uh, Never walked, never talked, never played with, never anything. Just basically in a cage, hooked up to a machine for three years. Paid for by her professional foster home while they received money and funding from the state, paid nursing hours, and they traveled the world on the money. That did not make me very happy. We got them shut down like immediately uh, after the end of this story. But um, whenever we got the email about Eva, that scared me, because my wife, her eyes lit up, and she's like, this, this is amazing. We, we could help this little girl. We could save her and give her a life. And I'm like, I already got two kids. I'm comfortable. That's a big ask. You know, that's a really big ask. Um, but so we we send an email and say, hey, we'd like to hear more about Eva. And nothing. We didn't hear anything. So we're praying about it, and we're like, well, I, I thought that's what the Lord was leading us to, but I guess not. They keep sending emails, eventually a little boy comes through, and we um, we send an email about them and go through this whole situation, I have to go to court and blah, 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 and deal with all this stuff, but long story short, this little boy, Silas, ends up in our home. He is now adopted, and you could never tell that he wasn't our son. He's just incredible, looks like me, it's weird, um, but <laughs> looks like me, but is as loud as Susie. So, I mean, it's it's a... It's a wild place in our home with these four kids, and he's the youngest. And everywhere he goes, it's just a battle cry. I just hear screaming, and oh, it's, it's amazing. But uh, Cy is adopted. Everything's finalized. We're taking pictures at the courthouse. And then like three days later, mind you, this is about a year and a half after we sent that email to Eva, they get back to us and say, hey, you still interested in Eva? <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> okay, I was Done. I was done after two. I took a big step of faith and we hit three, but a fourth and everything she has, all the baggage she has. So we were at camp that summer. We were at camp whenever I got that email. And the entire camp, I don't remember anything about that camp, except that I spent like every service at the altar, at kids camp, my kids are up there trying to pray, I'm like, y'all go pray with someone else, I gotta seek God. <laughs> and I'm praying and seeking God, and like, Lord, I need to know that I know that I know that this is your will for our life, that this is what you're calling us to, and felt nothing but green lights, everything, it was like, yeah, that, that's it. I said, man, okay. And we get back to him, go through that whole process, we adopt Eva, and let me tell you, Life as a parent, it began day one when my, my daughter was born, and every experience has been incredible, but I have learned more from Eva than I have over the last 12 years of parenting. She has taught me so much about love, about grace, about mercy, about kindness, about true joy than any other experience in my life. Eva has taught me so much, and I just, I think back to that time, and what if I had said, No. I can't, I cannot do that. I've already given enough. I've already adopted. I've already helped one kid. We have our own. I've got more than I can handle. I'm in ministry. I'm trying to stream. I'm trying to do all this stuff. I can't do it. If I had said no, not only do I hate to think where Eva would be today, because now she's walking, talking, eating, drinking. I was throwing, chunking her across the pool yesterday, and she's just flopping in the air and smiling. and Oh, amazing. I would hate to think where she would be today. I'm going to tell you one last story. In Persia, in Persia, there's this uh, a story that's told of a Persian general who, uh, he would take prisoners of war, especially spies. And whenever the spies would be captured, he had a, a very unique thing that he would do. He would give them an option of uh, their fate. He would say, you can either choose the firing squad or take what's behind the big black door. And He said, every time, let's just take this one time. He has a spy and says, the spy kind of thinks about it for a minute. Says, I'll take the firing squad. So after a few moments, they hear the shots ring out. And the assistant, uh, or he turns to his assistant and says, they always prefer the known to the unknown. People fear what they don't know, yet we give them a choice. The assistant asked, well, what lies beyond the big black door? The general replied, freedom, freedom. But he said, I've known very few men who have been brave enough to take that choice. That's the same way in our own life. Often we will choose the known over the unknown, even if that situation isn't as good, because we're afraid to take a step. We're afraid to step out of our comfort zone because it's something that's unknown. We fear it. We're worried about it. But you know what? If God is that good shepherd who leads us through those seasons, who lets us lie down in those green pastures, you know what? If he's calling you to it, he's gonna lead you through it. He's gonna lead you through it. So I encourage you today, you may be, you may be comfortable in where you're at in life. You may have been thinking about some big things Big choices that you have on the horizon, I'd encourage you prayerfully take that step of faith because life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. Thank you. Thank you. That's
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much.
2: Beast mode.
0: Let's give it up one more time for Pastor Dustin. Built different. That is facts. Built different, built like a D1 athlete, you know? <laughs> me, I'm built like a potato chip bag. Let's go. Someone has to be. Come on now. Someone loves potato chips, though. I know they do. <laughs> Yo, Pastor Boss, I see you laughing in chat. Don't be messing with me. St. Bear, how are you doing? How's everybody doing in the room? You guys feeling all right? Good. Amen. 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 All right, today I want to talk about, it's a subject that's always so, so, so diligently pushing. It's like eating at me when I sleep. It's leadership. I'm I'm a huge leadership guy. I believe in leadership. I think that we need a better understanding of leadership. We need to understand leadership in the context of what Jesus wants us to be, how we should be formed. And when I say that word, I often get this like from people in our community specifically. Leadership does not have to be a scary thing. Leadership is something I believe every single one of you is called to do. Because every single one of you has something called influence, right? Preached on influence. and I talked about that idea because I think it's John Maxwell that says influence equals leadership. Your influence has a great impact, and you influence someone somewhere, no matter who you are, no matter how low you are on the totem pole of life, you influence someone. Whether that even be the people beside you, whether it be the people that are leading you, you have the ability to influence them. And so today I want to talk about specifically this idea of servant leadership. Servant leadership is, what I believe, biblical leadership. It is the way that we should be, as Christians, leading every single time we lead. Now, it is difficult. It is not easy. It is much harder to master than just telling people and shouting at them. And Trust me, it is. But it's more effective. It's more beautiful. It creates a culture of health and goodness. And I believe that it is the leadership that Jesus modeled on earth. In a world where leadership is often associated with authority, control, self-interest, the idea of servant leadership can be a conundrum. It can be an upside-down thought, but it stands as a beacon of hope. It stands as something we can grab onto, a transformational approach that can inspire positive change, build a better team, a better community, a better family unit, and I believe it could even build you up In the midst of your service, it can change the fabric of a community if you can learn how to serve. Serving leadership is not a new concept, but its significance, I believe, is more crucial now than ever. We live in a society that does look at, like, the CEO position and say, Hey, you know, be the guy that, you know, tells people what to do. You want to be that guy that's in charge. You want to be that woman who is empowered. And they see, that idea of leadership as power they see it as a place for them to dictate their beliefs but there was a guy by the name of Robert K Greenleaf Greenleaf in 1970 coined the term servant leadership that seems pretty like modern right 1970 is not that far away some of you guys know 1970 in the room I wasn't quite there yet, but I prepong in the back says, yeah. Uh, 1970 is, is pretty modern for us to be thinking about this idea of servant. For the first time for this phrase to be used, to be used by a guy in 1970, seems interesting. But Robert Greenleaf had a vision. He was looking around America and he was seeing this very, very divisive, power-hungry, fueled leadership style. And it was hurting people. It was leaving wakes of terror in its, in its, in its wake. It was unhealthy. It wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't loving. It wasn't compassionate. And so he had a dream that he could help start to change and build a new institution of how you should lead. Now, we know that, obviously, he might have coined the term servant leadership in 1970. But Jesus was practicing that 2,000 years ago. And so he just really named what Jesus has already been doing. And so in servant leadership, leaders prioritize the well-being, the growth and development of the people that follow them, the people they influence. They lead with empathy, with compassion, humility, seeking to uplift those that are around them. I want to talk about a perfect example of Jesus modeling servant leadership in John thirteen twelve through 15. In the CSB, baby, get some CSB hype up in the chat, please, someone. What about here? Come on, some CSB hype? No? Thank you, thank you. That's my man, thank you. Oh my goodness, save that man. Okay, verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Let's put this in perspective. A king doesn't wash feet. A lord doesn't wash feet. Traditionally, Greenleaf recognized that they didn't do this behavior. This was not normative in the leadership that we saw in America. where the leadership we really see around the world. He realized that there wasn't this type of servant mentality. And Jesus flips everything upside down. He lived in 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 a place in a time where tyrants reigned. He lived in a place where kings were exalted and honored and glorified. And he rips down that institution by literally humbling himself, getting on his hands and his knees and cleansing the dirtiest part of someone's body. Doing what is known as servant's work. Because he was making a point. Leadership doesn't start above, it starts below. It starts from the ground up. You know, I used to do this thing when I was a kid, and if someone would like do something, they'd be like trying to pull a cool move off in basketball, I would go and like I would wipe the floor. Underneath their feet, like they were about to do something insane or cool. But it was this idea of like, really, I'm setting the stage. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was setting the stage for his apostles, his disciples, to understand this ideology that we are to be servants to each other. And he says it right in the passage pretty plainly. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. To become a servant leader, one must cultivate a unique set of attributes. Empathy really tops the list. This is something I still work on today all the time because I am not naturally empathetic. The ability to understand and share the feelings of others by empathizing with their team or with their family or with their coworkers, servant leaders can connect on a deeper level. They foster trust and building meaningful relationships. Another trait and really the trait I want you to key in on here is humility. It's another crucial trait of a servant leader. They don't seek the spotlight or take the credit for others' accomplishments. Instead, they celebrate the success of their team members. They celebrate the success of their family. They celebrate the success of their friends. And they take responsibility for their shortcomings. How many of us understand that it's kind of hard sometimes to admit, like, I messed up? It's difficult. It's embarrassing. Well, we mess up. That's human. That's normal. We need to get to a place where we're willing to humble ourselves and take responsibility for our shortcomings. We see this in the words of Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Once again, the CSB. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. The Bible excels at teaching us that it is not about us, but it's about everyone else. You might realize that it doesn't say not to take care of yourself. This doesn't say, you know, sacrifice yourself on the altar and, and not be able to lead. And maybe God does tell you to do that. You have to be led by the Holy Spirit. But there's a difference in between stewarding yourself well and selfishness. Selfishness says, I'm going to get mine first. Step back, this is mine. Self care says, I'm still going to get mine, but making sure others are cared for first. It's a difficult thing to watch that last slice of pizza go out the door and you have to eat like a salad. Trust me, I've been there many times. (laughs) but that is servant leadership it's making sure others are cared for before yourself it doesn't mean you can't get in the line doesn't mean you have to sacrifice everything last in that is listening is an art that servant leaders excel in They actively listen to their team's ideas, to their family's concerns, to their friends' feedback. They value and diverse perspectives, and they encourage others' opinions and open communication. They nurture their friends because they've realized that in collaboration, when you build up others, and you watch them actuate their dreams. They get to realize their dreams and start to chase them that you've created a healthy environment. I thought of this this imagery of trying to get juice from fruit. And there's a type of leadership that will take grapes, and they will crush them. And they will squeeze every last ounce out of you. And then they'll discard you. I think there's a better leadership that's not looking for the juice, but it's looking for the prize fruit. By cultivating and helping it grow and realize where the best place in the sun is for it to grow healthy and grow strong and realize what God has for its purpose. See, one is being used for my selfish gain. I want this juice. The other is realizing that maybe this fruit has another purpose and realizing that purpose and bringing it to its full potential. It's essential to understand that servant leaders are not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's adaptable. It's various. They model what it looks like to be positive change wherever they're impacting. And I leave you with this. I urge each of you to reflect on the power of servant leadership and its potential to redefine success and impact. Imagine a world where leaders chose to prioritize service over self-interest, where empathy and compassion-driven decisions were made for your betterment. Imagine if you were that person. I believe servant leadership isn't a utopian dream. I really believe it's something that we can have an impact on today. We can inspire positive change. We can empower individuals, and we can create a better, more just world for our generations to come. There was word spoken by Martin Luther King Jr. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. And I believe better said in Jesus' words, it says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. If no one's told you they love you today, I love you with my whole heart.